on February 10th of this year, that's four days before Valentine's Day, the second installment in the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy was released. Are you familiar with this trilogy? Okay, now, this is, this is church. I'll let you lie about this one. No, I, I pray that you're not. I pray that you're not. But uh, if you're not, let me just give you kind of a, a quick synopsis. The, the, the books are written by British author E.L. James, and it's a, it's a sensual romance novel, some would call it. Um, the, the books and the movies are so vile and focused on extreme vulgarity, disguised as love and desire, uh, that even those who have gone to see the movies sometimes walk away repulsed. As a matter of fact, here's what Focus on the Family's Entertainment Review, PluggedIn.com, has to say about the first movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey gives us not one, but two broken people hoping to find salvation in each other. This is a love story, it could be said, but any love story without God gets twisted into a broken, heartbreaking jumble. When we don't understand the love of Christ, we don't understand love at all. We hurt the ones we think we love. We confuse words like honor and obey with subjugation and degradation. We make a mess of things. Now, I I reference this movie not so that you'll go see it, but to remind you that our culture is in a mess. And we've got movies and books that teach us things about the love between a man and a woman that are not only off base, but that are vile and disgusting. And the question for us as a church, uh, I think the question as Christians that we ought to be asking is, how do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of a culture that has so missed the mark on love between a man and a woman that they don't know which way is is up? How do we respond to it? What's the, the best solution, the best thing that we can do? Some, some say boycott, some say write letters, <laughs> and, uh, and I would suggest a different way. I would suggest that we live a life of love, that our marriages be so passionate and so committed to one another that the culture says that's what it's supposed to look like. And so today what I'd like to, to do as we continue in our Song of Solomon series is I'd, I'd like to see if we can get a picture and an understanding of, of what it means to love and to honor and to respect one another. How do we offer, offer the culture a picture of love between a man and a woman, a, a picture of marriage that they're not getting any other way? In the book of Song of Solomon, we see the, the lover and, and the beloved so consumed with their commitment to and passion for one another. We get beautiful pictures of what God-honoring love looks like. And so today, while we look specifically at the marriage relationship, uh, as we get started, I want to say to those of you who are, who are not yet married but heading in that direction someday, Um, don't tune out. We may be talking about husbands and wives, but one day that's going to be you. And so so listen now and start to make commitments in your heart and mind about about the way that you will live in a marriage relationship someday. And I want to say to those of you as we get started who are saying, you know what, my uh, my marriage days are over. Uh, This this isn't going to apply to me. I want to say, first of all, we believe God's Spirit speaks through His Word every time it's spoken. 
And secondly, I want to invite you to, to pray with me. Even if God doesn't speak to you specifically about something today, would you be praying with me for those who are here who are married and need to hear this message or who will one day be married and need now to start making preparations for that? Let's bow and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that shines like a light in the midst of a dark culture. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us to be men and women who know what it means to love each other, to love our husband, to love our wife. Lord, we know that a world is watching us, and so we pray that we would present a picture not of boycotts and screaming, but of the way it ought to be done, of what love really looks like between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. Father, I pray today that you would help us each to hear and re receive your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply to our lives the truth that you want us to grasp this morning. And I pray that, that husbands and wives and fiancés and boyfriends and girlfriends and, and those not yet married but headed in that direction, that they would walk out of here today with a new purpose and a new commitment. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your word. Amen. So we've been working through the book Song of Solomon, and, and, uh, and we've seen, gotten peeks into, as we go, the way that the lovers talk to each other, the way they describe one another. Take, for example, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. She says, While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breast. And so the, the idea here is a functional, there's a functional method happening here. They, uh, what they would do is they would take um, a pouch and they would stuff it with uh, scented leaves of plants and, and herbs. And, and, and then the, the lady would wear it around her neck. And so as it rested on her chest, her body heat through the day would warm up this little pouch of sweet smelling fragrances and, and, and would send it out. Uh, would, would be a, a constant, fresh smell. And so she's saying, my, my lover is, is like that to me. He's like this, this sachet of myrrh. He brings out the best in me. When I'm with him, I don't have to worry about what I look like. I don't have to ask, do I shop too much? I don't have to apologize for all my shortcomings. There's something about being with this man that makes me better, that brings out the best me. Jump over to, uh, to, to chapter 5, verse 10. It'll be on the screen. My lover is radiant and ruddy, she says, outstanding among 10,000. Do you have any sense of how large 10,000 people is? Have you ever thought about that? So look around this, this room. Go ahead. I give you permission to swivel your head and look around. This room at maximum seating capacity seats roughly 400. We're obviously not at max today. Close. Probably just a few people missing. Um, but if you were to take this room at maximum capacity times 25, she's saying, I want that guy. More than 10,000 others. More than 25 of this room. I would not trade my lover for anything. Not more muscles. Not fewer years. Not more money in the bank. Nothing. I want this guy above everything else. He, uh, he has an interesting compliment for her in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. He says, Like a lily among thorns is my darling 
among the maidens. So just be careful of this, men. Great to call your wife a lily, probably not so much to call her friend thorns. Um, but that's what he says. She's like a lily among thorns. And she replies with an interesting compliment, too, like an apple tree among all the plain old boring trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He says, like a lily among thorns, and she says, like an apple tree among dead wood. My lover brings me great delight. There's nothing more that I like than being in his or in her presence. Uh, a while back, I was, I was gone for several days, and when I returned home, I found on the door between the garage and, and the, the house, that's the door I always use, I found this, uh, this piece of paper tape, actually the top one. If you can't read it, it, it says, welcome home, has some exclamation points, some hearts, and it says in the bottom, I love you. And, and uh, I got home from this, this week-long trip and, and saw that there. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is where I belong. And then, and then a little while later, there was another trip, and, and another sign appeared. And, and a couple days ago, we were uh, with, the, with the kids. I was walking from the garage into the house through this door past these signs when, when one of them looks at me and says, Dad, when are you going to take those things down? And I was like, eh, when they fall down. And, and this is kind of the sense I get that, that the lovers are saying here. You know what? These bring me such delight, such joy. I, I I, I, under, I like to be with this person. They remind me of what the relationship is like and how good it is. And she goes on and says, not only is my lover like an apple tree among a bunch of driftwood, but I delight to sit in his shade. We probably, you probably get that comparison right away. The, the shade of a tree provides protection from the, the sun. It, it, it provides comfort as we have an opportunity to sit where it's cooler. The, the idea is that my lover protects me. Our relationship offers me protection. So, so we read uh, here and other places the way they talk about each other. She says, my lover brings me great joy. He protects me. I, I feel safe when I'm with him. He brings out the best in me. I can be who I really am with, when I'm with him. I don't have to wear a mask or, or I don't have to be one of those pretty plastic Photoshop people on the magazine covers. I don't have to worry about what he's going to say when he sees the sides of me that no one else sees. I wouldn't trade this guy. So as we've talked about Song of Solomon, we've, we've said that this is a collection of love poems, or, or maybe we could say it another way. This is love letters that, that two lovers exchanged with one another throughout their relationship. But the idea here is that it's poetry. Now, more often than not, poetry is meant to be descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Do you understand the difference there? Poetry describes what is in very um, flowery terms. It rarely does it tell us how we ought to be or, or how we ought to live. What we, uh, what we learn from the description and what we apply to our lives are two different things. But, 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 but think about description and prescription for a minute. How weird would it be if you went to the doctor and, and you needed some medicine, and so this is what he wrote on his little pad. You aren't feeling well. This will help you. Pay an arm, a leg, arm and a leg and take this Tamiflu. I mean, we don't use, right? Yeah, corny, I know. We don't use poetry to prescribe things. We use it to describe things. And so as we look at how these lovers describe one another, let me ask this question. 
What is it about the way they describe one another, about their relationship and what it affords them that we can learn, that, that, that gives us a glimpse into God-honoring marriage? So to be more specific, men. How can we be the kind of men where our, our wife would say, my man is outstanding among 10,000. I delight to sit in his shade. Or women, how can you be wives who, who help your husband to be like a sachet of myrrh that brings out the best in you, like, like a refreshing apple tree in the midst of a bunch of dead wood? So what I'd like to do today is to look to another place in Scripture where we actually get a prescription on how to make that happen in marriage. Today we're going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 if you'd like to turn there in your text. It's also printed on your note outline. And we're going to see what Paul prescribes to us to make this happen in our relationships. I'm going to ask uh, out of respect for God's word if you would stand for the reading of the Lord. And then, then after I've read it, after we get through verse 33, I'll just ask you to respond with, hear the word of the Lord. What's your line at the end? Amen. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And then he quotes from the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Hear the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul has some pretty direct instructions to us as husbands and wives here. But, uh, but the goal is, the ideal is that if we submit to what the Word of God says here, if we put it into practice in our marriage, then, then our spouse will have the, the, the ability to honestly say, I delight to sit in his shade. And, and she's like a lily among thorns. We're going to dive right into what Paul says here, and we're going to start with the husbands. Paul says, uh, says to us men, to, to those of us who are married, husbands, you are the head, you go first. You are the head, you go first. Notice verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, if we're going to say, husbands, you are the head, we have to say everything that Paul says. And Paul says, you are the head as Christ is the head of the church. And notice there's no stop there. There's, there's no pause. He says, you are the head the same way that Jesus Christ is. Now, we could, we could spend an entire sermon talking about how Christ is the head of the church. That's not the point today. So just jot some of these references down in the margins of your notes or in the margins of your Bible. 
Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. These are places where Paul talks about what it means for Christ to be the head of the church. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. 1 Corinthians eleven three, Ephesians 1, 22. Colossians 2, 10. The long and short of it uh, rests on this word that Paul uses here in Ephesians, the word head. In, in Greek, the word is kephale, kephale. And the word actually translated probably means head. Yeah, I know. Surprising, isn't it? Okay, but not head in the sense of director or controller, not necessarily the ones who, who's in charge, not the head of the company type head. Um, the, in, in Greek and Hebrew thought, the, the, the idea of control and, and, and who calls the shots, that was thought to be located not in the head, but, but in the bowels. And, and we kind of get this. I mean, if you've ever had food poisoning or stomach virus, you know what's in control then, right? Can I get an amen? All right. So when, when Paul says you are the head of your wife, like Christ is the head of the church, the idea is more like source. Think about it like this. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, how did God create Adam? Raise your voices. Raise your, raise your, raise your. That's right, exactly. He created a dust man, and then he breathed into it, and it was Adam. And when it came time to create Eve, how did God create Eve? Yeah, he used a different format, a different formula. He, he took a rib or a bone, he took part of Adam's body and created out of it a woman. And so what Paul says here is, as Christ is the head of the church, as Christ comes before the church, so man, you were created, husbands, you were created before women. And so you are the source. You're the example. The idea isn't control, but the idea is those who come after you follow your example. And so set a good example. Live a life that is worth following. Men, our headship in marriage is not about who calls the shots. It's, it's not about power and control. It's about setting an example that your wife would want to follow and that if she follows, will take her in the right direction. You're, you're to be able to say to your wife, as Paul says to the church at Corinth, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says to the husbands, first and foremost, you are the head you go first. You set the example. You set the tone. You set the pace. And then he says, number two, your love must be sacrificial. You come second. Your love must be sacrificial. You come second. Notice again, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, how did Christ love the church? Paul doesn't let us wonder. He says it right there at the end of verse 25. He gave himself up for her. Every wedding ceremony that I perform in, in one way or another at some point in the marriage, and Blake and Morgan, you guys will get to see this here in a couple months. I look at the couple and I say, from now on, you are not the most important person in this relationship. From now on, the person standing across from you, their needs, their desires, their wants, they are to be the most important men. Your greatest concern is now your beloved. This is what Paul says to us here. You need to, your love needs to be sacrificial. You're not first, you're second. 
And, and we like to think of sacrifice in, in big terms. We like to think of the, the hero saving the day, guns a-blazing, muscles pulsating. But this isn't the kind of sacrifice that Paul is talking about here. Um, he's ta- talking about a sacrifice that takes courage, but it's the courage men not to talk about our wives like other men talk about their wives, not to roll our eyes and and, and make jokes about her when she's not around, not to complain about her most recent shopping trip. It, it, it takes courage, but the courage to revere our wife when everyone else is bad-mouthing theirs. It takes strength. It takes strength to allow our wives to see our weaknesses so that she can fill them in. It takes tenacity, the the willingness, the desire, the commitment to stick with it no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how much we want to give up, no no matter perhaps how much she isn't responsive to our headship and, and, and our sacrificial love for her. It takes tenacity to say, I will not quit. Men, our love has to be sacrificial. We must come second. As Jesus was willing to lay down his life, we too must be willing to lay down our lives for our wife. And again, I'm not talking about some, just some grand sacrificial gesture where we'd be willing to jump in front of a, a would-be mugger to save our, our wife. I'm talking about the day in and day out, laying down of our lives for our wife. I'm talking about being the head garbage taker outer at home when the can is full. I'm talking about being the one that says, no, honey, go back to bed. I'll, I'll calm the kids down until the storm is over. I'm talking about the one who says, you know what, honey, there's one piece of pizza left you take it. I'm talking about the one saying, you know, honey, we haven't been to a movie in months. Let's go see a chick flick. Okay, maybe not that far. Paul says, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he laid down his life for his bride. And the question is, are you doing that too, day in and day out, not just in the big things, but in the small things. There's a, there's a goal behind this sacrifice. This is number three. Your goal must be Jesus' goal, to present her radiantly holy. Notice again verses 26 and 27. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And Paul says, this is how you are to love your wife, men. Now, let's not be confused. We're not talking about having a Messiah complex. Your wife has one Savior, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes her holy. He's the one who washes her with his word. He's the one who, uh, who when it's necessary, convicts her of the things in her life that are wrong. Your goal isn't to be Jesus to your wife, but your goal on the earthly temporal level is the same goal that he has on an eternal salvific level, and that's to help your wife become holy. Men, our goal, our desire, our commitment to our wife must be that we will do everything we can to help her become holy. Men, we've got to understand that one day we're going to stand before God, and as he examines our life, I believe one of the questions he's going to ask us is, Tell me about your wife. And I don't think he's asking uh, how many kids she raised. I don't think he's asking how much money she made. Was she a success in the workforce? Did Did she turn heads whenever she walked into a room? I 
think what he'll be saying to us is, tell me about your wife's holiness. What did you do to present your wife to me as a holy woman who loved me and served me and shined like a star in the darkness? Above all else, men, husbands, your concern for your wife has to be her Christ-likeness. This is the first thing that you think about when you wake up, and that's the last thing you think about before you go to sleep. If your wife isn't becoming more like Jesus because of her relationship with you, you are missing the mark. You need to go back to the drawing board. Your goal is to present her to, to the Father, radiant. And then Paul says at least one more thing to the men that we're going to look at this morning, and that's number four. Your first move is submission out of reverence for Christ. Your first move is submission out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is where some of you have fallen asleep, woke up, and go, hold on a second, Pastor. This isn't how we talk about this passage out of Ephesians. But, but notice verse 21, the verse that kind of leads into this whole conversation. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let me make sure that we're reading this verse right. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who does Paul say is supposed to submit? Go ahead and look in your text. He he, he doesn't really say in this verse, does he? We have to supply the noun. And so it's an understood you. Anyone who hears this, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look at your neighbor and say, I must submit. Oh, I don't know. You're not buying it. Okay, so in in verse 21, to whom are we supposed to submit? Oh, yeah, this is different. What's he doing here? I'm not really sure I like this. Yeah, Paul says submit to one another. So look at your other neighbor and say, I must submit to you. Oh, a few more that time. Now, wait a minute. I didn't just see a husband say, no, I think that's your line. Okay, listen, this verse 21 leads into this whole conversation where Paul talks about submission in marriage. And I believe there's a, there's a bigger principle here than wives submit to your husbands. And that's the reality that to be a disciple of Jesus, whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, doesn't matter. If you say, I'm following Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus means that you intentionally place the well-being of others ahead of your own well-being. This is what it means to submit. And Paul says here in verse 21, all of you submit to one another. And so men, that applies to us too. And we don't necessarily like to talk about this. This isn't how we, how we usually preach about this, but this is the reality, men. Our first step is to be willing to submit in the right context. Several weeks ago, um, Sarah and I were having a rather intense conversation. Uh, I won't say that one of us was yelling, because both of us were. Um, and as we, as we talked, Sarah put her finger on a, a blind, blind spot in my life that I hadn't really paid attention to. You see, several months before this conversation, I had started playing a new game on my iPad. Actually, Pastor Joel had introduced me to it. And uh, <laughs> come along, buddy, I'm taking you down with me. 
it was a game that, that he and I played together online. There were other people on our team, you know, from, from all part, I mean, all over the world, United States and world. And, and we, were, we were playing this game. We were having fun. We, I mean, we would always, we'd be sitting down before staff meeting. The rest of the staff would talk and look at us like, what are you guys talking about? Um, I, I, grew to, I grew to enjoy this game. And so I played it all the time. Like I would play it every night for, for hours on end. I would get up in the morning and I'd do my devotions and then after my devotions, I'd play this game. And, uh, and of course, every guy needs a lunch break. So um, even if I didn't eat lunch, I made sure to play the game over my lunch break. And, and if I was frustrated or stuck throughout the, the day, guess what I did? I played the game. And, and if I had an appointment somewhere and I was early or if the, the person I was meeting was late, yeah, you could find me playing the game again. I was always playing this game. And ironically, the, the name of the game was, uh, was Gods of Olympus. And that's like my wife said at that point, um, that game has become Gods of Rural, and it consumes your time and your energy. And, and as soon as she said it, I had this impulse to like puff up my chest and say, now you listen here, woman. I, I'm not proud of this, but this was my impulse. Don't you understand how, what Pastor Joel and I are doing? We're, we're doing our best to connect with other players and have opportunities to, to pray with them and encourage them and minister to them in the name of Jesus Christ. How dare you tell me I'm working too hard at that? That was my impulse, but um, praise be to God. The Holy Spirit whispered in my ear um, the verses we just read here, Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another for Christ. And men, this is where the rubber hits the road. When a brother or sister or, or a friend or, or an elder or your wife points out an area where you're missing the mark, what's your, what's your response? Do you puff up your chest and start to point the finger? Or do you bow the knee and take the, the path of biblical submission Paul says as he starts his conversation to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Men, we don't have to have all the answers in our marriage. We don't have to be the best. We don't always have to call all the shots. Um, if your wife is better at something than you are, let her do it. Encourage her in it. Go for it. That's good. You don't have to have the biggest income. You don't, you don't have to have all the solutions. It's okay to not always be on top. Remember, headship in marriage is a not about being in charge. It's about being willing to sacrifice. Man, if you're the head of your marriage and, and if you intend to love your bride as Jesus loves the church so that you can present her to the, the Heavenly Father radiantly holy, if you're willing to submit to your wife in a God-honoring way, I believe she'll be able to say, I delight to sit in his shade. Now, wives, you don't get off the hook. Paul talks to, to you too. And, uh, and we can see it right here starting in verse 22. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, I step into these next few minutes knowing that I'm on shaky ground. How many of you women have heard a, a pastor preach on these verses before? And he's probably always been a male. And if I, if I had to guess, I won't ask you to show by, uh, by, by raising your hand, but I would guess that more times than not, you walked away going, I'll be okay if I never hear him say that again. Fair enough. 
before we go any further on what Paul says to him, and I want to draw your attention to, to a few things. First of all, Paul says at least twice as much to the men about marriage and their burden, their responsibility, as he says to the wives. As a matter of fact, as I broke it down for today, and I'm, we're not hitting everything in these verses, but as I broke it down, uh, I drew out four things that Paul says to husbands and, and two things we're going to look at that Paul says to wives. And really, it's only one thing, but you can't do an odd number. So it's, I kind of like broke it down, and it's, it's two things. So let me say right off the bat, women, our perspective is right. We're taking the, the, the same approach that Paul took here. The, the majority of the responsibility for a healthy marriage rests on the shoulders of the husband. But wife, you too have a role. Number one, you too, wife, revere Christ through submission. Okay, now this verse 22 is a, is a tricky one. You don't notice it in the English but if, if you go back and translate it from the original language, from the Greek, um, it sounds kind of awkward. As a matter of fact, here's just a rough translation, word for word, from the Greek. The wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. That's the whole verse. The wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. So when English translators come to this verse in the Greek and have to translate it and figure out how do we make sense of this in the flow of this paragraph, what they have to do is figure out, What's the verb for this sentence? Because there is no verb in this Greek verse. And so they, they do what translators do when this happens. They go to the verses immediately before it, immediately after it, to see if they supply a verb. And so if you were to translate kind of as Paul wrote it from the Greek, it might sound like this, verses 21 and 22. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, that includes you submitting to your husband as you do to Jesus. Okay, so do you get what's happening here? It's almost like Paul writes this verse kind of like an afterthought. The instruction is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then, oh, oh yeah, wives, you should, you should do that too in regards to your husband. It's like he's saying, wives, I place no more on you in your relationship with your husband than I place on every person who's following Christ, a God-honoring submission. Now notice how Paul uh, continues the thought in verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Number two, I would say, submit in everything. Christ's headship covers all. Submit in everything. Christ's headship covers all. Now this is, this is perhaps where we get into some tricky ground. Because our culture shows this picture of submission that is neither God honoring, that doesn't glorify God in any way, and certainly doesn't help one another become more like Jesus. Certainly doesn't help a husband to present his wife to God as radiantly holy. And, and I understand that, that, that some of you here today would say, but, but Pastor Earl, I, my husband's not even a believer. Or, or he says he is, but I don't, I don't see the fruit of that. Are you telling me I'm to submit to him in everything? No, I'm not telling you that. Scripture is. It's right there in verse 24. Notice it doesn't say, wives, submit to your Christian husbands as long as, as you know for sure that he read the Bible today and went to church the last three out of four Sundays. There's, there's no qualifications here. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. And he qualifies it with, 
as you do to the Lord or out of reverence for Christ. There's, there's no qualifications, no loopholes, no exceptions. And even if your husband isn't following Christ, God calls you to submit to him as you would submit to Jesus. Now, we understand that to mean that if your submission to your husband violates your submission to Christ, then you honor your submission to Christ first. You love your husband, and you give yourself to your husband. But you don't violate your submission to Christ when there's a known, direct law of God from Scripture. You honor that while you love your husband and continue to give yourself to him. But, but most, of, most of the women here today wouldn't say that's their story. I do have a husband who's a Christian, and he's following Christ, and, and he's involved, and I've seen growth in him in the time that we've been married. So again, I remind you, catch the last word of verse 24. Everything. You see, the temptation can be to submit to your husband up to a point, and this is what, this is what the culture teaches us. This is what the, the feminist movement teaches us, that, uh, that, that if I need to submit at all, it's only up to a point. And, and, and most Christian women that I talk with, they want their husband to be the spiritual head of the family. But when his leadership moves out of the spiritual realm, it's hard. It's hard to follow his leadership. I mean, what do you do when he tries to lead you in an area that isn't specifically or explicitly spiritual? When he challenges your eating habits, or when he pushes back on your time management, or when he puts his finger on a specific friendship that he thinks may be hurting you? What do you do in those moments? I don't pretend to know how you think, but but I wonder if, if sometimes it's not, uh, well, you know, I, 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 I heard from God that he wants me to, I know that he wants me to spend this much time like this in this relationship. He, he's okay. God understands if I have a little indulgence, you know, little four candy bars before bed. I mean, he, he gets it. He understands. God's okay with it. I'm sure he is. God's never said anything to me about it. Or has he? Has he through your husband who is striving to love you as Christ loves the church, who understands that his most important responsibility before God is to present you to the Father as radiant and holy, has God not spoken to you through your husband? And if you've got no other place in Scripture where there's a specific commandment to do this or not do this, then I believe Paul would teach us here that wives, the responsibility is to listen and submit to your husband, because the reality is he will answer to God for the direction he leads you in, in whatever the situation is. He will one day stand before God and have to give answer for why he asked that of you, why he led you in that direction. And I wouldn't want to be in his shoes if, if the answer he gives God doesn't glorify God. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes if you say, makes it pretty clear here that the role of husbands is to love their wives as Christ loves the church, to present her as holy, and the role of the wife is to submit to their husband in everything as they submit to Christ. And you show me a married couple who's, who's practicing these things, and I'll show you a delightful patch of shade that brings protection and safety and refreshment to both people in the marriage. You show me a husband who's the head of his family, 
and I'll show you a wife who delights to sit in his shade. But shade doesn't just happen in marriage. And the longer you've been married, the more you realize it isn't just going to come to be. If this is something that's going to happen, we're going to have to work at it. So as we close today, um, let me ask you a few questions that will help you discern where, you at, where you're at. If you're, uh, if you're dating or engaged, men, does she feel safe when she's with you? Not just physically, but in every way, emotionally, spiritually, financially, uh, sexually, relationally. Gals, do, do your words about your man, especially when he's not around, do they, do they flatter him or do they flatten him? Do you speak well of him, especially when he's not listening? Are you spending more time looking for the right person or being the right person? Husbands and wives, I would ask you some questions to see how you're doing here. When you talk about her, when she's not around, what tone of voice do you use? What body language do you use? Do you roll your eyes at things she said? Do you, do you talk to your coworkers about how much money she spent online last night? Wives, does your husband know that you respect him? Does he know that you desire him more than 10,000 other men? Husband, are you treating your wife like you're trying to win her hand again? Like you're trying to outdo 10,000 other men. You see, the reality is that marriage is a spotlight. It's not a Billy Rubin light. Marriage exposes the areas where we're weak. It doesn't make us better at them just because we're married. If we're going to do this, it's going to take a commitment with the help of God to make it happen. And so two last questions. Wives, when was the last time you prayed for your husband? And, and husband, when was the last time you initiated a time of prayer with your wife? I mean, this is what I want to invite you to do in response to God's word today. In just a moment, we're, uh, we're going to play a song. And as soon as the music starts, men, I want to invite you. I want to challenge you, husbands, to take the, wife of your hand, the, the hand of your wife and, and to bring her down here to the altar. And just kneel or sit on the, the front rows, kneel at the altars, kneel at the stairs, and, and just have time as the music plays to pray with your wife. I challenge you to, to step out and do it. Make up your mind now if you're going to do it because you won't have long once the music starts to make up your mind. And, and if you're here and you're not yet married, my challenge to you is the same. If, if your significant other is here, men, I challenge you, I encourage you to bring her to the front and spend some time praying together. And last night as I, um, as I went through the message with my children in the room, I got done and one of my daughters said to me, well, what about the people who aren't married? Shouldn't they come and pray too? I said, you're absolutely right. And so I want to challenge you teenagers and, and, and those of you who are single, this is an opportunity for you to come and to, to spend some time praying that you would become the kind of person, the kind of husband or the kind of wife one day who would bring your spouse great delight, who would offer her great shade, who would make it easy for him to be an apple tree among the other trees of the forest. Make up your mind now, and as soon as the music starts, if you want to come, I invite you to come and